Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story, Season 4, Episode 2, Vestiges. The brake lights on the lead vehicle flashed bright red. Brent was pulled from his doze by the grab of the seatbelt. He slid his hands down his thighs, smoothing the creases of his khaki pants the best he could, and craned his neck to look around the black suburban for what the delay might be now. The tinted windows made it hard to see much. This trip, that should have taken a couple of hours, looked like it would consume most of the day. They were continuously slowing or stopping to navigate obstructions. It seemed endless. The apocalypse was becoming increasingly hostile to efficient travel. The dead world didn't care about Brent's agenda. Like an anaconda slowly squeezing its prey to death, the apocalypse was grinding down the pace of life. In addition to the decaying abandoned vehicles, there were downed trees and washouts. They were forced to stop and move obstacles or seek alternate routes or even to backtrack where the road was completely impassable. And here was yet another stoppage. From what Brent could see, it looked like a pile of brush from another down tree. His driver put their Suburban in park and got out to help the other driver clear the road. Brent ran a hand through his short-cropped hair and wondered whether he should get out and help. But he didn't want to get pitch all over his hands and clothes. He didn't want to show up at the meeting with this new group, looking like a groundskeeper. First impressions mattered. He wasn't sure what kind of impression he was going to make, however, showing up with two vehicles and three people. Quite the impressive entourage for the rump government of these United States of America. But the extra vehicle would be useful if he found any new recruits that would be willing to return to the bunker with him. It also meant that they had a spare if one broke down, which these vehicles had a habit of doing now that the maintenance staff at the motor pool were gone. He shifted his weight and pulled the Sig Sauer M18 pistol from its holster in the four o'clock position on his back hip. It was digging into him a bit, but that slight discomfort had always brought him peace of mind, like knowing where your phone or wallet was. 
except who cared about phones and wallets anymore. He checked it from many years of drilled-in habit. Clean your weapon before you clean yourself had been drilled into him by more than one NCO. Each time he ventured out from Knoxville on one of the general's diplomatic missions, the road got worse. How long would it be before they were impassable? How could they rebuild the country if the infrastructure crumbled faster than they could repair it? As much as he'd like to, he couldn't shut off his brain from planning. He had problem-solved many times throughout the 15 years of force protection work and recruiting in the Marine Corps before he was medically discharged. The last five years at Oak Ridge as an emergency manager kept his brain active as well. From his early days with the Marines to his undergrad on the other side of the river, he was always a problem solver and a plan maker. Now they would need a plan to keep the roads open. But why? Why should they care? Brent always started with the why, because good roads made for a functioning state. Roads carried commerce and armies and influence. Since the beginning of civilization, good roads were part of the equation. Didn't all roads lead to Rome? Without roads, the country would devolve into disparate, geographically separated localities. Each little town of survivors would dig a moat and build a wall and seal themselves off for safety. The world would regress to a series of local hill forts like Dark Age Europe. That would be the end of the nation-state. He couldn't stop himself from rolling this infrastructure challenge around in his head. How could they maintain the roads and bridges and lines of communication when the central authority lacked the resources and manpower to do so? The only sensible plan, Brent figured, would be to get the local survivors involved, motivate the locals to make it one of their priorities, decentralize the problem. Each survivor settlement needed to maintain physical and commercial communication with the next until they were all connected into a commonwealth. With time, that would work. He filed the plan away for future consideration and laid his head back to stare at the scuffed roof of the Suburban. They had enough good plans. What they lacked was people to execute them. And that's why these trips were important. Brent had to rally the locals to get all the arrows pointed in the same direction, to get everyone working to rebuild not just the roads, but the state, the country, and all the infrastructure and institutions before they were lost, before it was too late. And so... Brent went on these diplomatic recruiting missions to bring more survivors and communities back into the fold, to get them on the inside, working together to rebuild. To hear the general talk, 
Their mission was nothing less than saving the world. Saving the world. Brent wasn't so sure about saving the world, but he could get behind saving America. As long as the general's vision was true to that, Brent would put his head down, do his duty, and do the best he could, like he had always done. It was important, not just to recruit people to help rebuild the state, but to give them hope as well, to let the survivors know that the state was still out there, working and fighting for them, to give them some structure, something to rally around, and hopefully keep them from killing each other in the power vacuum of the apocalypse, focus that energy on rebuilding instead of fighting. As LBJ had said, I'd rather have them inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Of course, Lyndon had been talking about Hoover, but the sentiment was a good one. The only way they were going to get out of the ditch that the virus put them in was to get everyone who was left, all the survivors, working together. His job was to convince them to join forces, reform local governments, local police, and yes, get them to clear the brush from the roads. Brent sighed and reached for the door handle. That's when he heard shouting. Hands up! You go for a gun and you're dead! Brent heard a voice shout. At the same time, a dirty face and a gun appeared at his window like some nightmare apparition. Out of the car, asshole! The face said. Brent smiled an appeasing smile and raised his hands in surrender and slowly reached for the door handle. There were three of them, dirty and tired-looking. They smelled of an organic dankness like ghouls risen from a peaty bog. And there was another smell, a smoky smell that Brent recognized, the smell of a battle. These men must be from the conflict they had seen. More than your run-of-the-mill bandits then. Deserters or retreating combatants. Brent would need to be careful. These men wouldn't have anything to lose. Brent casually scanned the perimeter to see if there were others hiding nearby. Two of them held the rifles pointed at Brent and Brent's men who had been clearing the road. A third, evidently wounded, slouched behind them, holding his arm in a blood-stained sling. Brent would feel them out. Who knows? Maybe he could recruit them. One of the dirty men looked at Brent and assessed the sport coat, the clean-pressed shirt, and the neat khakis over spit-shined shoes. Going to a party, pal? Brent responded levelly and without fear. I'm on a diplomatic mission to find and recruit survivors. Why don't you put down the guns and we can talk about it? He smiled his diplomat smile and held eye contact. Who exactly or what are you recruiting for? The man scoffed. The government, Brent responded. 
This provoked a guffaw from the man, and he addressed the others. He's from the government. Now, don't that beat all? Brent said nothing else. The silence hung between them. The dirty men seemed more uncomfortable with the silence than he was. Eventually, the one who seemed to be the leader broke the silence. Okay, let's stop screwing around. He nodded at the two drivers. You two, finish clearing that brush off the road. Be quick about it, and don't get funny, or we'll get brains all over the diplomat's clean shirt. We're taking the vehicles, he said to Brent. Consider it part of a government relief program. We're going to relieve you of your vehicles. He smiled at his own joke. Brent was nonplussed and asked, How about you take one of the vehicles and leave us with the other to continue our mission? How about I aerate you with lead and leave you in a ditch for the rats to gnaw on with the rest of the dead? I'll see your point, Brent continued. I'll throw in some MREs, clean water, and enough gas to get away from here. What gave you the idea? We're negotiating, the dirty man said and raised the barrel of his rifle level with Brent's forehead. What makes you think that gun has any bullets in it or it'll even fire? Brent said, looking at the man's rifle. Looks like you dragged it through the mud. Brent smiled again. Tell you what, I've got my kit in the car. I'll clean it for you. He continued. So, you get a vehicle, food, water, gas, and a clean weapon. Brent paused. Gotta admit, that's a pretty sweet deal. And in exchange, we get to continue our mission and keep breathing. What do you say? Mister, I think you talk too much, the man said. Just then there was a shout of a woman's voice from the tree line. Drop the weapons. We've got you dead to rights. You even flinch in your history. The three desperate men did not drop their guns. They moved quickly behind the vehicles for cover. The leader pulled Brent closer as a shield. He shouted at the tree line where the voice had come from. We're taking a vehicle and leaving. You try and stop us and I'll shoot this fancy failure. Brent had had enough. God damn apocalypse. He moved fast with practice fluidity. He swept his arm up, knocking the man's rifle out of the way. There was a dry click as a dirty man pulled the trigger. Brent dove sideways and rolled onto his back, drawing his pistol in one motion and locking the sight on the second-armed man. This new target was turning the business end of his rifle towards Brent. Brent squinted and squeezed the trigger just as the other man's rifle barked, sending a bullet that shattered the headlight mere inches away. The man's panicked shot missed, but Brent's shot was true. A nine-millimeter slug buried in the man's shoulder, spinning him around and causing him to drop the rifle. He stumbled backwards and fell onto his backside with a thud, screaming obscenities. Meanwhile, the other one, the leader, had dropped his fouled gun and was running to get away. 
Brent pivoted to see him some distance down the road and yelled, Stop or I'll shoot! The man either did not hear or chose to ignore the warning. Brent held his breath and squeezed off another round. The fugitive fell and rolled, clutching one of his legs and screaming in pain. The third man of the group, their wounded accomplice, went slowly to his knees and put his good hand on his head, resigned in tired defeat. Brent kicked the two rifles under the car and, with one hand still aiming the pistol at the fugitive, motioned toward the tree line. You can come out. The fun's over, he shouted in the direction the woman's voice had come from. He kept a watchful eye on the wounded men and gave instructions in a calm but authoritative manner. McCarthy, make sure these two don't have any concealed weapons. And Joe, go drag that other stupid asshole back here and get the med kit out. Be careful, guys, he added. Let's try not to cause any more trouble today. He checked his pistol and lowered it, but did not return it to the holster as he waited to see who would emerge from the woods. An athletic woman with sharp eyes walked slowly out of the trees. Her hair was tied into a tight ponytail that stuck out from underneath a black Atlanta Braves baseball cap. She had a rifle. It wasn't pointed at Brent, but her attitude told him that the safety was off. She stopped a few feet away and surveyed the scene, then inspected Brent for a long moment. On your way to a Boy Scout convention? No, ma'am, on a diplomatic mission. Brent smiled his disarming smile. Janet considered this for a moment. She nodded her head at the wounded men being attended to by Brent's drivers and said, Looks like diplomacy failed. She shouted, Lions! And two other people emerged from the brush with rifles ready. Safe word. She said to the question on Brent's face. Well, thank you. We're glad you distracted them when you did. But why didn't you just take the shot when you had the chance? Janet held his gaze and responded. We're not all gunslingers. I didn't want to risk it. Thank you for that, Brent said politely. I appreciate your caution. The world has become a dangerous place. You see any more of these stragglers? She asked, motioning to the dirty men. No, ma'am, just these three. He looked at her. You know them? Yeah, we were following them after the recent dust-up to make sure they kept running. We weren't going to start anything, but then you showed up. We're headed to some sort of distribution center down by Chattanooga for a meeting. Know where that is? Brent asked. Janet looked him over. She looked the vehicles over. I can get you there, she confirmed. Can I give you a ride? He asked. She pointed to the wounded men on the ground who had been bandaged up and were in the process of being zip-tied. They were glaring sullenly at their captors. What about them? I guess we'll take them with us, Brent suggested. Or not, Janet said. The implication of her words threw Brent for a second. Now it was Brent's turn to consider Janet. She wasn't emotional, but she seemed hardened. Had she always been like this, 
Or had the apocalypse turned her into something harder, something perverted from the old normal? He regained his inward composure and came to a decision. Diplomatically, he said, Technically, they're my prisoners now, so I make the call. Okay, do what you want, but they're your responsibility, and I'm not riding with them. That matter settled. She seemed to soften and ask, What do I call you? Name's Brent, Brent Dominion, but my friends call me Dom. He stretched out his hand for a shake. Janet hesitated, but finally grabbed the preferred hand, locking eyes and bearing down to make the handshake hurt. They call me KJ. Brent laughed. Quite the grip there, ma'am. Tell you what, KJ, if you'd ride with me, I would be grateful for any information you can share about the distribution center and the people there. The wounded can ride in the other vehicle. He walked over to one of the Suburbans and held the door open for her like it was some sort of prom date. She shook her head and got in. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my survivor friends. Now we're getting into the swing of things with this story, huh? Yeah, some new characters, some new stuff here. Got the whole thing going. And I got some great feedback on the first episode, so thanks for that. Uh, What do I want to talk about today? Well, I have this new email notification option on my website. Yeah, I figured out how to do it. And before I forget, because I would forget my own name if it wasn't written on the inside of my underwear, I figured out something new. Yeah, I set it up so that when I post these outro comments, these comments here, 
these discussions with all the links, the hyperlinks. I post them on our website at oldmanapocalypse.com. I can also make it so it sends an email to anyone who wants it. I'm kind of lying. I can send it to the first 200 people who want it, then they're going to want to charge me money, but I'm willing to do that. And I'm only at 20 right now, so your odds are good. So all you have to do is go to oldmanapocalypse.com, go to the blog page, and click subscribe, and I will add your email to the list, and you'll get the posts in your inbox when the episode drops. And honestly, there's nothing perfidious about my intentions here, except... I'm going to need you to also provide your password, your bank account, your date of birth, and your social security number. Kidding. Kidding. Technology. Love it. We are over 400 members at our Facebook group. And if you would like to come join that community, that's cool. It's quite benign. We we post apocalyptic art in old sci-fi pictures and trailers from our favorite movies and that sort of thing it's a relative oasis of calm on the internet nothing to fear but when you do ask to join because it's going to give you some challenge questions to filter out the robots remember to answer those challenge questions so i know you're either not a robot or you are a self-aware artificial intelligence either way i will let you in And while we're selling, I do have a Patreon account if you want to help out, or you can buy me a coffee, and you can do whatever. You can also subscribe on ACAST to get shows early and some listener-only content. So help us help you by leaving a rating and a review for the new season. That's it. That's all the selling I'm going to do this episode. Let's talk about what I am consuming. What am I listening to? Well, I just finished listening through the audio drama podcast, Samuel Sift, Post-Apocalyptic Detective. And I, I liked it a lot. The writing is really funny. It's a noir detective series set in a post-apocalyptic zombie environment. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Uh, the actors don't quite pull it off all the time, so the script is out ahead of the voice actors. But, you know, that's how it works when you're having your friends and relatives do uh, audio for you. <laughs> But it's a good premise, Detective Noir, based in the zombie apocalypse. Uh, It sometimes crosses the line from noir into silly, but overall I did love the writing, and it was very funny at times, and it had a good comedic rhythm to it. So what am I reading now? Well, I just finished reading Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett. And who is Dashiell Hammett? Sounds familiar. Yeah, he's the guy who wrote The Maltese Falcon. And again, I, I really like this, this noir, detective noir genre. And it sort of dovetails in with the Samuel Swift stuff, right? This is a full-on, probably one of the best examples of this detective noir from the 1920s. And the writing is just so unique that I really love it. He uses so much gangster or, you know, that 1920s vernacular that sometimes... I need to stop and reread a section just to understand what's going on. And it occurred to me, ironically, that I used to do the same thing when I was trying to read Shakespeare. So, you know, this noir stuff, this 1920s gangster speak, is just a, like a different version of English, which made me think about how, how the language drifts over a fairly short period of time. This book was written in a particular moment of time, which makes it very interesting as well, historically because the plot is about a company town 
somewhere in the heartland of America, uh, I think it's in Montana, that had labor issues. So some gangsters were called in to break up this labor movement. But unfortunately for the town, the gangsters decided to stay and they took over. At that point in time, when this was written, this was very topical. This wasn't something that was outside the pale. This was a common thing, these company towns. There were many of these towns across America where one capitalist set up a factory to make something and basically built their own town around it. I mean, Hershey, Pennsylvania is an example of that. On the one hand, they were single-handedly creating industry from scratch, just from, from whole cloth, as they say. And the lack of any kind of laws or controls on industry made for this period of rapid industrialization and growth and wealth for the capitalists and for the country. But, you know, on the other hand... On the other hand, they lured in millions of cheap laborers to fuel these factories, and it wasn't always the best place to, to uh, be a laborer. So you had all this tension that would have been in the headlines at this time, and that's what Hammett is layering his story on top of. And it sort of reminds me of another book, which I think I was probably forced to read in prep school, called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Great prose, great writing. And that book chronicles the fate of immigrant families in the meatpacking plants in Chicago. So The Jungle is a book that I, I did actually like. It's a thick novel, but I liked it. It's a book that contemporary writer Jack London referred to as the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the meatpacking industry. So, so if you're feeling antsy and overconfident, go read The Jungle as well. So what am I watching? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have watched my way through a science fiction series on Amazon Prime called The Night Sky. Now, it is a bit of a slow burn for science fiction, but the, the character acting is top-notch. And it may be worth watching just for that, because it stars Sissy Spacek, who we all know, and J.K. Simmons. Now, I swear, J.K. Simmons is in every single movie or series on TV right now. Anything you've ever seen in the last five years, he's in it. He's a fantastic character actor. Uh, you nerds may know him as J. Jonah Jameson in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, the recent ones. But at the same time that I was watching him portray this elderly man in The Night Sky, my wife was watching him portray an evil CEO who lifts weights and is bulked up in the Billy Bob Thornton series, Goliath, which I only saw a couple of those when my wife was watching it, but I'm going to have to go back and watch Goliath because it is very Chinatown noir. And by Chinatown, I, of course, refer to the 1974 noir film with Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, and John Huston, directed by Roman Polanski which everybody always refers to Chinatown, but I'm not sure how many people have actually ever watched it. It's a good watch. Anyhow, in Night Sky, J.K., he plays uh, half of an elderly couple who have a portal to another world, dimension, something, under their lawn shed. 
And as the story progresses, it loops in other characters. The plot thickens. It reveals more and more. And there are good guys and bad guys and action and such. And I found it quite thoughtful, especially because I was reading Dashiell Hammett at the same time. And I was thinking a lot about characters and plots. Plus, I'm putting this season together. So I'm always I'm thinking, how does this apply to my own work as well? But also, unfortunately, The Night Sky appears to be one of those series that was intended to have multiple seasons, but they're only going to make one. So the resolution at the end feels a little rushed and a bit weak, leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But that being said, if you like a good character-driven, slower drama, if you're sick of the constant stream of explosions, car chases, and gunfights between beautiful women and muscle-bound men, well, this is something you might dig. It's slower-paced. It's thoughtful. And let me move you towards the exit, my survivor friends. I've got a new editor on staff to keep me honest as we start to introduce these new government-type characters. And being a writer is a bit like being a drug addict. Eventually, all of your family and friends are pulled in and impacted by your habit. Say hi to my son-in-law, Blake, the new editor, who happens to know the difference between an M18 and an M17. It's a family affair. So keep your M4s clean and shiny and keep surviving.